Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, 2 Samuel chapter 15. Well, Absalom is going to be nearly successful in his rebellion against his father, King David. Seems as though a lot of the nation was behind Absalom. And so David found himself in a position to either use his few remaining loyalists to resist the usurper in what would have been a very bloody, destructive affair, or to do what he did, voluntarily abandoned the city of Jerusalem and leave with a group of loyal followers. The plain sense of this narrative of 2 Samuel 15 makes it clear that this was all part of God's punishment and curse upon David as a consequence not only for the Bathsheba matter but also for the general way David had conducted himself as a human politician instead of a divine representative of God on earth. We read the entirety of 2 Samuel chapter 15 last week and we're going to do so again this week but in smaller chunks. Okay? Because we're going to dissect chapter 15 very carefully. So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Page 349 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. I'm just going to read the first 12 verses. Sometime later, Avshalom prepared himself a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the road leading to the city gate. And if someone had a case that was to come before the king for judgment, Avshalom would call to him and ask, What city are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from such and such tribe in Israel. Avshalom would say to him, Look, your cause is good and just, but the king, he hasn't deputized anyone to hear your case. And then Avshalom would continue, Now, if I were made judge in the land, anyone with a suit or other cause could come to me. I would see to it that he gets justice. Moreover, whenever any man came close to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and he would take hold of him and kiss him. And this is how Avshalom behaved towards anyone in Israel who came to the king for judgment. And in this way, Avshalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of 40 years, Avshalom said to the king, Please, let me go to Hebron and fulfill the vow I made to Adonai. Your servant made a vow while I was staying at Geshur in Aram to the effect that if Adonai would bring me back to Jerusalem, I would serve Adonai. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he set out and he went to Hebron. But Avshalom sent spies throughout all the lands of Israel to say, the moment you hear the sound of the shofar, then start proclaiming, Avshalom is king in Hebron. And with Avshalom went 200 men from Yerushalayim who had been invited. They went innocently, knowing nothing about the scheme. Avshalom sent for Akitophel, the Giloni, David's counselor, to come from his town Gilo and be with him while offering the sacrifices. 
the conspiracy grew strong because the number of people favoring Av Shalom kept increasing. Absalom was currently under the influence of delusions of grandeur. After years of planning and conniving, he was finally ready to take that final step into his father's shoes. So he began behaving as though he was a king. And he did that by making himself popular, highly visible to the masses. Verse 1 explains that he took a royal chariot with its horses, along with a contingent of 50 men, part of the royal guard. And he stationed himself at the entry to Jerusalem. Now the mention of horses is no doubt to show Absalom's disharmony with the Torah commandment of Deuteronomy 17.16. Jewish kings are not to have very many horses because that is what pagan kings do. And invariably, they wind up being used against their own people. Now, Absalom stationed himself next to the city gate because that's where court is convened. The prince with his entourage would have been quite an impressive sight People coming to look for justice or coming to create a contract met at the city gates so that there were witnesses. Now to mentally picture this, imagine a politician standing at the entrance to a shopping mall, stopping to shake hands, kiss the babies, ask the people where they were from, and then explaining that the current government administration just doesn't care about them as much as he does. Scripture says Absalom would ask what city the visitors lived in and they would answer according to what tribe they were from. See, this is a subtle but important piece of information about the mindset of the people at that time. The people identified themselves not according to a city or a village but according to a tribe. In 2010... We live in a time of a very politically divided America. And so we tend to align ourselves less on where we're from than according to our political leanings. Left, right, center, independent, libertarian, whatever. In times past, simply being an American was sufficient to explain our political and social foundation, our our allegiances, our our vision for, for a future. And this was because there used to be more unity, more common cause, but no longer. This is akin to how things were in Israel at this time. Israel was initially formed as a fundamentally tribal society, but was being dragged by King David into a more national oriented mindset. It worked for a time especially when the northern tribes that formed King Saul's kingdom saw the worth of joining with the tribes of the south to form a union under King David. But with David's growing indifference, even his isolation from the people, the Bathsheba adultery episode, the murder of her husband Uriah, this long-simmering 
dissatisfaction and bitterness of Saul's extended family for the throne having been taken from them and given to David, well, the nation was deeply fractured. The underlying tribal structure was the natural fallback position. And the 12 tribal chieftains were only too happy to regain the full loyalty of their tribal members, a loyalty that for a time had been directed towards the king of Israel. Thus, when Absalom asked the people what city they were from, a question from the point of view of nationalism, they responded by telling him what tribe they were from, a question answered from the point of view of tribalism. And Absalom especially seized on the apparent current dysfunction of the court system, which must have been chief among the people's complaints. People journeyed to Jerusalem to have their case heard, but David had been lax in appointing judges to hear them. So the citizenry was often turned away, frustrated, without their case even being addressed because there was no one to deal with it. Thus in verse 4, Absalom assures these disgruntled Israelites that if he were king, all of this would be solved. Since the only thing that matters to him is proper justice and the the citizens' welfare. And of course, Absalom, being a prince and son of the king, was treated as a man of his station would be expected. The people would prostrate themselves before him when he approached them, but he would deflect such adoration. And he said he'd kiss them with a kiss of friendship. And so verse 6 explains that it was in this manner that he stole the hearts of anyone in Israel who came to Jerusalem for justice. Now understand that this does not mean that he stole their affections. Again we see the use of the word lave, heart. But in those days it did not mean emotion or affection. It meant mind. That is, Absalom stole their minds. He deceived the people by presenting himself as a man of the people when in fact he was but a man seeking personal power and only needed them to achieve it. All of this can only make us wonder at how weak, how disinterested a king that David had become. And although we don't know how long his son's disloyal politicking went on, there's utterly no possibility that David wasn't fully aware of it. And in fact, some psalms testify to his knowledge of Absalom's ongoing subversion. You know, I can easily picture the king's closest advisors constantly returning to David, pleading, trying to find the words to make him understand what a serious breach of faith was occurring, how dangerous this was soon to become. But alas, David was just too self-absorbed. He was too paralyzed with his own guilt, right? indulgent of his children to take any action whatsoever. We have no mention of even a conversation between David and Absalom about the very public and obvious attempt to subvert that was occurring daily. 
To the Hebrews, David appeared utterly powerless, hapless. And so the door for rebellion was just thrown wide open. Now verse 7, in most translations, says at the end of 40 years, Avishalom made the decision to declare himself king in Hebron. Now the number 40 is an obvious copyist error since there is no way that Absalom went to the city gates for 40 years. Some scholars have tried to attribute the number 40 to the amount of time that David had reigned by now or or maybe to Absalom's age at this moment or to several other possibilities, but none really fit. Other ancient versions of the Tanakh, such as the Aramaic and the Syriac texts, give the number as four and not 40. And that's probably correct. Most of the ancient sages say that it had been four years since Absalom had returned from Gesher. And that's most likely the case. If it's true that he had been home from Gesher for four years, then it would have been seven years from the time of Amnon's murder and Absalom's flight to Gesher that Absalom decided to name himself king of Israel in Hebron. And that would make the most sense, especially since the number seven indicates divine completeness. Okay, That is, the seven-year time frame shows that it was at Jehovah's direct hand and the affairs of men that led to this astounding event of David being usurped by his own son and this in divine retribution for David's sins. Well, the event of going to Hebron is an interesting one. This place had much significance, especially for David's family. It was the city where David first became king. So it was his first capital city. It was also where Absalom was born. But it was also sufficiently far away from Jerusalem and offered fortified facilities such that if Absalom failed, he could retreat there. But it was also a place known in antiquity to Abraham. And so it carried with it long-term Hebrew tradition and and heritage. Apparently, an altar to Yehovah and a worship center also remained there. Because even though Absalom was in Jerusalem, at the time he still claimed he needed to go to Hebron in order to pay a vow that he'd do with God during his self-exile in Gesher. Paying a vow, by definition, means offering an altar sacrifice. In fact, hidden in the original Hebrew is an expression that needs to be taken literally instead of slightly modified to make more modern sense of it. Where our complete Jewish Bible and most other translations say something to the effect of, please, let me go to Hebron and fulfill the vow I made to Yehovah. What it really says is, please let me go to Yehovah in Hebron and fulfill the vow I made. Yehovah in Hebron is a standalone phrase. And we're going to see other similar phrases in the biblical Hebrew, such as Yehovah in Samaria, Yehovah in Gilgal, Yehovah in Taman, so on. 
Okay, it's of the same nature and literary form as, as Dagon in Ashdod. Dagon was the chief god of the Philistines, and the idea is that a certain god has established a manifestation of himself at a specific place. Thus, Yehovah in Hebron means a place where Yehovah is in Hebron. So the concept that a god was everywhere simultaneously was not yet fully developed, not even among the Israelites. And thus, Yehovah was only where he had sanctuaries and where he had priests to serve him. One of those was in Hebron. But why not just sacrifice in Jerusalem? Well, actually, that wouldn't have been expected since the main sanctuary at this time was probably in Gibeon. But since Gibeon was in Benjamite territory, Saul's old tribal territory, it would have been quite politically incorrect for a member of David's family of the tribe of Judah to sacrifice there. And very likely, in the current nasty political environment of Israel, it wouldn't have been very welcomed by the Benjamite people. So Absalom's selection of Hebron seemed a a reasonable choice to David, considering the old family ties to that place. But verse 11 explains that despite the excuse of going to Hebron to fulfill a vow, he used the occasion to disperse spies all throughout Israel to tell those loyal to Absalom that the time for rebellion had finally arrived to make him king. The sound of the shofar means a battle cry because the shofar was a device used to send signals during war, like a bugle. Going to Hebron was very clever because it gave a false pretense to invite 200 innocent courtiers here called men of Jerusalem to go with him to, well, as far as they knew to participate in Avshalom's vow offering ceremony and to be as a retinue that provided not only a measure of safety but a proper procession for the crown prince of Israel. Taking the 200 men who were loyal to David along also allayed any suspicions that David or his advisors might have had, especially considering this daily show that Absalom had been putting on at the city gate for some time. Well, once arrived in Hebron, Absalom called for a close advisor of David's to come from his hometown of Gilo on the same pretense of being an honorary member of the witnesses to Absalom's vow fulfillment ceremony. But unlike those 200 men who had journeyed with Absalom from Yerushalayim, apparently... Akitophel had been part of this conspiracy all along. Akitophel was a powerful member of David's inner court, renowned for his wisdom and sage advice. And as such, he was one of David's most trusted counselors. Some say that his betrayal of David is is all wrapped in mystery. I don't think so. Akitophel was Bathsheba's grandfather and would have had intimate knowledge of all that had transpired 
I mean, one can only imagine how distraught, how deceived that he felt when David seduced his granddaughter and then had her husband eliminated. That David kept her as a wife was a kind of a dual-edged sword. On the one hand, it was probably the best thing that could be done to protect this pregnant young woman and keep her disgrace to a minimum. But on the other hand, David had many wives, many concubines, and she was only his trophy wife. Further, a person such as Achitophel could argue that if David was sincerely sorry for his abominable behavior towards his granddaughter, he could have made a public apology, offered restitution to her family, cared for all her needs, instead of making her to appear to, appear to be an adulteress with equal culpability as David. No doubt for Achitophel, his support of Absalom was all about honor and revenge. Let's read a little bit more of... Uh, Chapter 15. We're going to read from 13 through 18, just five verses. A messenger came to David, saying, The men of Israel have aligned themselves with Absalom. And David said to all of his servants with him in Jerusalem, Get up, we must flee. Otherwise, none of us will escape from Absalom. Hurry, leave, or he will overtake us, attack us, put the city to the sword. The king's servant said to the king, Here, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king sets out and all his household after him. The king left ten women who were concubines to care for the palace. The king set out with all the people after him, but they waited at the last house for all his servants to pass by him in review. All the Kriti and the Politi and all the Gitim, 600 men who had accompanied him from Gath, passed in review before the king. Verse 12 tells us that the conspiracy to dethrone David spread like wildfire. This was no narrowly devised scheme made from only among the leaders. It was a popular uprising that David had well earned. And when some of David's men in the area of Hebron got wind of what was occurring, they came to David at the city of David and they told him David's instant reaction was to flee. You know, it's perversely funny to me that this passive king that no longer cared to do any more than enjoy the luxurious trappings of being a head of state suddenly loses his passivity and he springs into action when he feels his own life's in danger. Everything has come full circle for David. From fugitive in the wilderness to the palace of the king back to the wilderness again he goes. The following verses make it clear that David knows that this is the hand of God's curse upon him. Okay. Time for a mini-sermon. Because there's some foundational patterns and principles in play here. And we need to learn from them. 
the narrative of the anointed king and his followers fleeing in haste towards the east as the evil prince reveals his intentions cannot help but conjure up for the believer a New Testament passage that's eerily familiar to many of us. In Matthew 24, verses 15 through 20, it says this, So when you see the abomination that causes devastation, spoken about through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the illusion, then it will be time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. If someone's on the roof, he must not go down to gather his belongings from his house. If someone's in the field, he must not turn back to get his coat. What a terrible time it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you will not have to escape in winter or on Shabbat. See, what we see happening in 2 Samuel 15 with those who are faithful to the Lord's chosen king running for their lives as the wicked challenger reveals himself, is a shadow and a pattern for this Matthew 24 event. This future to us, although I think not too far into the future. Okay. Many, many who were at one time loyal to the anointed king switched sides, either through deception or lack of commitment. And they switched to the anti-king. And this reminds us of yet another of the famous sayings of Yeshua about a dark time of rebellion and evil in the latter days. And what it's going to mean in a very practical way. Listen to Matthew 7, 15-23. Beware of the false prophets. They come wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they're hungry wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Can people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every healthy tree produces good fruit, but a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a poor tree good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, but Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And then I'm going to tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now please hear me. Christ is speaking about believers here. He's talking about believers that are going to be fooled, drawn in by deceivers, the hungry wolves. They're going to teach a false doctrine. And as a result, they're going to follow the Antichrist. They're going to give up their faith in the true Messiah after perhaps a lifetime of following Him. 
believing that this, this charismatic false one is God's new anointed. And then Christ is going to reject them and walk away. I, I grieve over this long-preached notion in some of the most popular evangelical circles that there's absolutely no way that a real believer would ever voluntarily leave the divine sheepfold and attach him or herself to another. Therefore, anyone who would, that who would uh, maybe succumb to this deception, anyone who would take this opportunity to rebel, was only a pretender. They weren't ever a believer. Well, that simply doesn't match what the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, warn us against. I mean, such a notion even defies common sense. Why, if falling away isn't even possible, would we be warned against it over and over and over again? Warned of the terrible consequences. Why would we be warned if it's not even possible? And the pattern in 2 Samuel 15 that those who were at one time loyal to the death for David is well established. They could be fooled by another leader who's masquerading, masquerading as a good and righteous king. All of this is well established in Holy Scripture. David had tarried for a long time. He went out of the view of the people. He didn't seem to be there visibly for them for a long time. So a highly visible and attractive false shepherd that promised to address all the people's needs, to be a champion for the people now, was able to win over a huge portion of the congregation by convincing them that he was God's choice, representing God's will. See, Christ went visibly away almost 2,000 years ago, and we've been living on faith and counting on the invisible Holy Spirit inside of us ever since. Many worshipers have fallen away over the centuries, some almost immediately after his death, because they felt that if he was coming back as he promised, he would have done so by now. Nothing is more dangerous for any human being, including a believer, than to come to the conclusion, this could never happen to me. I just have too much faith that somehow I've achieved immunity from deception. I have all the truth. Or that by walking an aisle, I've purchased a permanent and guaranteed hedge against destruction. And nothing I could ever willfully do or willfully decide could change things. Patterns. God patterns do not change. Because God does not change. Verse 15 is a classic case of the Lord dividing, electing, and separating as we hear these 
these marvelous, these comforting words of faithfulness spoken to David at his lowest moment. Here, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. This is the great divide. A clear division now is drawn between those who will continue to stand with the king even in the face of danger and the very real possibility of death versus those who will choose what seems to be the popular and winning side. But winning and losing is not the issue for the still faithful. Getting on the side that appears will achieve victory for now doesn't matter. Doing what is right, remaining steadfast, committed to God's King, that's what's important. Now might be a good time to make the reality of this this situation all the more intimate for us by peering into David's mind. by means of the psalms he wrote. as this, This rebellion unfolded all around him. Everything spinning out of control. I want you to notice the counterpart to the characters in the psalms that are going to happen a thousand years from David's time in the person of Judas Iscariot who will betray his king and master, Yeshua. Turn first to Psalm 41, and then we'll go to 55. Now these were written before the rebellion of Absalom actually broke out. And just before David thus fled to survive. So go to Psalm 44. What did I say? 41, I apologize. 41. Psalm 41. We're going to read it all. A Psalm of David. How blessed are those who care for the poor. When calamity comes, Adonai will save them. Adonai will preserve them, keep them alive, make them happy in the land. You will not hand them over to the whims of their enemies. Adonai sustains them on their sickbed. When they lie ill, you make them recover. I said, Adonai, have pity on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say the worst about me. Oh, when will he die and his name disappear? When they come to see me, they speak insincerely. Their hearts, meanwhile, gathering falsehoods. Then they go out and spread bad reports. All who hate me whisper together against me, imagining the worst about me. A fatal disease has attached itself to him. Now that he lies ill, he'll never get up. Even my close friend, on whom I relied, who shared my table, has turned against me. But you, Adonai, have pity on me. Put me on my feet so I can pay them back. I will know you are pleased with me if my enemy doesn't defeat me. You uphold me because of my innocence. You establish me in your presence forever. Blessed be Adonai, the God of Israel, from eternity past to eternity future. Amen. Amen. (laughs) 
Here we see that David knew something was up. As isolated as he had made himself within the halls of his palace, he sensed that rebellion was afoot and he was tormented by this knowledge. He overheard the whispers that the people wanted him to die and go away so that they could have the king of their choice. Almost like once again choosing Saul. False rumors are spread. Many believe them. Even his closest advisor and friend is turning on him. David pleads that his only hope for survival and restoration is the Lord. And yet David also portrays himself as innocent, which is patently not so, except in the sense that the Lord has, by grace, given David pardon in the spiritual sphere. But here is where we also see the foreshadow of Judas, part of Yeshua's most trusted and inner circle of friends betraying him. And David may see himself as innocent, but Yeshua is innocent. But interestingly, in both cases, David and Yeshua bear the curse of the law upon them. David is bearing it for his own iniquities. Yeshua for ours. Let's turn to Psalm 55. For the leader with stringed instruments a skill of David. Listen, God, to my prayer. Don't hide yourself from my plea. Pay attention to me and answer me. I am panic-stricken as I make my complaint. I shudder at how the enemy shouts, at how the wicked oppress. For they keep heaping trouble on me, angrily tormenting me. My heart within me is pounding in anguish. The terrors of death press down upon me. Fear and trembling overwhelm me. Horror covers me. I said, I wish I had wings like a dove. Then I could fly away and be at rest. Yes, I could flee to a place far off. I'd stay in the desert. I'd quickly find a shelter from the raging wind and storm. Confuse Adonai. Confound their speech. For I see violence and fighting in the city. Day and night they go about its walls. Within are malice and mischief. Ruin is rife within it. Oppression and fraud never leave its streets. For it was not an enemy who insulted me. If it had been, I could have borne it. It was not my adversary who treated me with scorn. If it had been, I could have hidden myself. But it was you, a man of my own kind, my companion, whom I knew well. We used to share our hearts with each other. In the house of God, we walked with the crowd. May He put death on them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their homes, also in their hearts. But I will call on God, and Adonai will save me. Evening, morning, and noon I complain and moan, but He hears my voice. He redeems me. He gives me peace, so that no one can come near me. For there were many who fought me. God will hear and will humble them. Yes, He who has sat on the throne from the start 
for they never change and they don't fear God. My companion attacked those who were at peace with him. He broke his solemn word. What he said sounded smoother than butter, but his heart was at war. His words seemed more soothing than oil, but in fact they were sharp swords. Unload your burden on Adonai. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you will bring them down, God, into the deepest pit. Those men, so bloodthirsty and treacherous, will not live out half their days. But for my part, Adonai, I put my trust in you. Here we see that David sees the writing on the wall. And he is panic-stricken. David is suffering from anxiety and fears that death could come at any moment. He wants to run. But what truly grieves David is that this was not an enemy who was determined to undo him, but a friend. It was one of his own kind, he says in verse 14. It was someone with whom he shared a common heritage, his innermost thoughts, and was, a, was considered a reliable companion. All day and all night, David complains of his situation to the Lord, and although the situation just seems to, to, to grow from bad to worse, David is given a measure of peace that belies his, his current calamitous circumstances. Again, we see this pattern of betrayal passing forward into the future with Yeshua lamenting his foreknowledge that one of his closest friends the disciple Judas will betray him more than that Judas is a Jew if only it were that someone from the people who were naturally hostile to Yeshua and to Israel was the one who wanted to kill him. But no, it was a fellow Jew who would do him in. I also see a discernible pattern that the evil Antichrist of the end times will be one of Messiah's kind. A Hebrew, making it all the worse in a sense. But in the end, the only hope is to place full trust in Jehovah, God of Israel, and David and Yeshua do exactly that. What we see from these Psalms is that David is like a person who's watching a loved one die of a long illness. You see it coming. You have time to think about it. It's not really a surprise. You feel you're probably prepared for the inevitable, but when it happens, all that goes out the window. And you're crushed. David was well aware of his deteriorating status among his people. That rebellion was brewing. That his closest friends and family were involved and that many of the people were ready to see him go. But when in verse 14 it finally happened, the king quickly capitulated and hurriedly fled 
devastated. He leaves ten of his more trusted concubines. Note that he doesn't leave any legal wives to remain in the palace to care for it, knowing that harems go to the next king, so there's no reason to expect harm to come to them. As the long parade of David's household, household servants, royal court, and a relatively small group of loyal fighting men reach what is called the last house, David pauses to assess the size and makeup of the remnant that's going to go with him into exile. The last house is the outer boundary marker of what is considered Jerusalem. And so it's appropriate to stop there and reflect on how things could have come to this. The Kariti, the Politi, and the Gitim are his personal bodyguard, made up mostly of foreign mercenaries, not Israelites. The bulk were actually former Philistines who joined David so many years earlier as he lived as an outlaw, avoiding King Saul. And now, once again, David was on the run, but this time trying to avoid death at the hand of his own son. We'll continue next time.